please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. On May 14, 1973, America's first space station and first crewed research laboratory in space blasted off on the last Saturn V rocket. This was Skylab. Following a near-catastrophic design issue requiring in-orbit repairs by astronauts shortly after launch, Skylab's crew conducted hundreds of experiments and captured nearly a quarter of a million images of the sun with the onboard solar observatory. This observatory was called the Apollo Telescope Mount, or ATM, and featured eight specific experiments for solar studies, including two X-ray telescopes. One of the X-ray telescopes was SO56, a grazing incidence X-ray telescope that captured more than 25,000 solar X-ray images from Skylab. I'm Ryan Vericelli. Join me as I speak with retired NASA physicist Richard Hoover about Skylab on this very special episode of Dare to Explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. I'll let you know what I find. The last 25 or so years of my life I've devoted to astrobiology. But when I, when I grew up, as I was young, I, I developed a love for science at a very early age. Uh, when I was in the fourth grade, my major Christmas present was a microscope. And with this microscope, I had a window into the micro world. I had my own private zoo. I loved watching paramecia and amoeba getting into giant battles with other kinds of microorganisms <laughs> and eating diatoms and eating algae and watching this stuff go through their bodies and see and seeing all of these little things pumping and and the flagella and cilia moving it was incredible uh, of course in that time period in 1954 uh, we had just gotten a television. In fact, uh, that was a brand new and exciting thing when we got our first TV. I grew up in a uh, family that was relatively poor. Uh, my father was working as a butcher, and that, as a result of that, he was exempt from World War II because he was providing food for the people that stayed at right. home, whereas others went to battle. Um, and actually, when I got my microscope, I started exploring the micro world and loved seeing all of these wonderful things. Then year after that, I got a chemistry set and wanted to be a chemist. And uh, uh, so each year, the following year, I got a telescope. And, uh, and I, uh, in, in 1952, I got a book called uh, On the Universe by Fred Hoyle. Uh, and that book on the universe was really a revolution, revelation to me. I became absolutely enthralled with astronomy. Uh, I had my own telescope and I could see the craters of the moon and, and the moons of Jupiter. 
and this was absolutely astonishing. So this was and, a pretty good telescope you had. Oh, it was a little three-inch re- reflector. Uh, not a bad telescope. Uh, it was bought at Edmund Scientific, and uh, I think my dad paid about twenty-five or thirty dollars for it. Of course, twenty-five or thirty dollars quite a bit. Yeah, that time period was a fair bit of money. Uh, but each year uh, we got one big present, and that was what Santa brought us. Right. We got to tell <laughs> Santa what we wanted. So that was the beginnings of my real realization that I love science. But I love mathematics. Mathematics is the purest form of science. And uh, when, uh, when I went to Henderson, uh, I, Henderson State University in Arkadelphia, I wound up uh, getting a triple major in mathematics, physics, and French with a minor in chemistry. At that point in time, I had decided that I wanted to be a cosmologist. I was enthralled with the works of Einstein. I had uh, Einstein's uh, the book with his papers translated into English, Special and General Theory of Relativity. And so after I got my degree from Henderson, I went to uh, on a National Science Foundation grant to Duke University, where I studied under Professor Hare. And he knew that I wanted to do cosmology so he suggested that we we work with the Burbach key volume on infinite dimensional vector spaces, which he couldn't read because it was in French. It was in <laughs> French and mathematics. So if only there was someone who had taken French. French. <laughs> <laughs> so I translated the book and struggled through the mathematics. It was incredibly difficult, and uh, uh, I I loved it though because uh, I had I had taken all these courses on uh, the French theater, uh, great masterpieces, uh, the <laughs> works of, uh, of Corneille, Racine, Molière, uh, the, the works of Théophile Gautier, who translated, uh, 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 his works were translated, uh, the works of Charles Baudelaire. And uh, so uh, this was a delight to be working both in mathematics and French. And uh, I had then, after that, I went to the University of Arkansas, and when I got there, my professor wanted me to uh, teach an elementary course and also uh, work in x-ray diffraction, which was his field. So I started studying x-ray diffraction and doing some x-ray diffraction experiments. And I was there, and all of a sudden I got a phone call and was asked to come to the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center to be a part of the rocket team, the Von Braun team that was developing the Saturn vehicles. They had already done the, uh, the Mercury Redstone and they had launched uh, astronauts, which I was intrigued with, but I never thought I would have a chance to right. work in, in the space program. They sought you. Yes, yes, and uh, went to my professor, and this was in November of 65, and. I was making $1,250 a year teaching this elementary science course. <laughs> and I told him I had been offered a job at $7,500 a year to come to NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. And I wanted to know if it was okay for me to leave his <laughs> keep at the end of the semester, leaving him kind of high and dry, and go to NASA to work uh, at the Marshall Space Flight Center. And his reply was, well, you've got to. I said, I've got to. He said, if you're so stupid that you don't take a 
job like that, you're too <laughs> stupid to teach a course in elementary physics. <laughs> <laughs> so you went. So I said, okay. So I left and came here and met Gene Payne and Norm Hulkberger. Gene is still a lovely lady that I see frequently at the Marshall Retirees Association. She was the first human being I saw at NASA uh, on February the 2nd, 1966, and that was one of those days that I will always remember because I drove in and saw the beautiful rockets standing over in the Marshall Space Flight Center rocket park and went to 4200 and there in that magnificent building I knew on the top floor was Werner von Braun's office and yet I thought I was going to work in fluid and flight mechanics. That's what they told me. <laughs> but then when I got here, Gene says, no, they've made a decision that you're going to work in optics. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I love science, whatever. <laughs> right. And so she sent me over to the Applied Research uh, Laboratory. Uh, actually, it was Astronautics Laboratory Applied Research Branch uh, that was under the direction of uh, Dr. James C. Taylor. Tex Taylor. Wonderful guy. Absolutely strong Texas accent. He had a way with words. And James C. Taylor... Uh, sent me to work with Phineas D. Evans, P.D. Evans, who was a brilliant optical scientist. One of my earliest projects I was assigned to, they were working on lasers, uh, and the first effort was to build a telescope to be used for laser tracking communication and guidance of the Saturn V on the way to the moon. The plan for that was to build corner cube reflectors corner cube is like you take the corner of a box and you make it out of a high quality glass now you've got a, a pyramid you've got a square base and four triangles uh, and if you shine a laser beam into that square base it will hit one of those triangles and reflect from the inner surface to the opposite triangle and then reflect right back on itself retro reflect it doesn't matter what angle the light goes into the pyramid, it always comes back exactly on itself. So the idea was we could put retro reflectors on the Saturn V service module and by shining a telescope and hitting the Saturn V, the beam would come back, it would send a sharp pulse of light. You know that light travels at 186,282 miles a second. If the beam comes back exactly two seconds after you sent the pulse out, you know that in exactly that direction, the way the telescope is pointing, there is your Saturn V vehicle that is exactly 186,282 miles away from you. So now you can know exactly where in space at any point in time that Saturn is. <laughs> Wonderful. So we built some of these, and we actually built a telescope that we put on Madkin Mountain, and it had very special kind of, of control where it could track and move. And, and in order to test this most amazing thing, they actually made arrangements to have corner reflectors put on airplanes. Really? Ah, uh, yeah, but you Just couldn't like... use any old airplane. We had special airplanes. We had one flight on an SR-71 and one flight on a U-2. <laughs> and and these, what, year was, what year was this? This was in... 
60, late 66, early 67. Uh, about the time I joined Skylab was right. late 66. And this is but way was, before people even knew those planes existed. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they were classified at the time. That's oh, amazing. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, when, we, when we tracked, we had to know where the airplane was going to be at a particular point in time, and then be able to, to acquire it and hit it. And then we were able to track it as it went streaking across the skies above Huntsville, and it was possible to determine the exact altitude as well, which <laughs> was classified. <laughs> so, you know, they were, one of the flights was around 93,000 feet, but, <laughs> and it was going very fast. fast. <laughs> so we were able to prove the proof of concept that laser tracking and, and guidance could work. And if you modulate the laser beam, you could communicate. Now, I have no doubt that that technology was employed in the future for communicating with uh, a high-altitude aircraft uh, traveling on missions that they didn't want anybody to know right. precisely what communications were going on. And the nice thing about a laser beam, unless you intercept that beam, you can't get that communication. So right. I suspect those te that technology was used in parts of the world that people didn't talk about very much. The problem was it put weight on the Saturn V and there was a decision made that everything that wasn't essential had to be taken off and the corner reflectors were removed and not flown on Apollo 8. And later, they actually flew an array of these retro reflectors to the moon on Apollo 11. They were able to send a beam to the retro reflectors, get a response back, and determine the distance from the telescope to the moon to an accuracy of about an inch. Wow. Which was astonishing. Oh, Buzz Aldrin was the one that actually pointed it to the, to the Earth, general direction of the Earth. And it doesn't matter as long as it's generally pointed to the Earth. If the telescope beam hits it, it's coming back to the telescope. So <laughs> right. you just got to aim at the site where they landed. How large was this? This was a small array. I think it was about a foot by a foot, something like that. So from the Earth, you, from the Earth. you hit a target that was well, one foot. Well, of course, the beam was much bigger than that when it hit, but it didn't matter. If a portion of the beam hit the, hit the target, then you got a reflection back. Wow. But at that point in time, in, in late 1966, uh, uh, the job of doing Skylab was assigned to the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. Ernst Stuhlinger was the one that made that happen. And when the assignment was made to the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, my boss called me in and said that uh, they wanted me to work on the X-ray telescope. And in fact, Jim Taylor approached it differently. Richard, he says, how much do you know about X-ray optics? And I said, nothing. He said, <laughs> what I thought. You're going to learn. Launch of Skylab. Celebrating with the summer of Skylab. Celebrity events taking place through November of 2023. J. 
James H. Underwood was British. <laughs> and at that time, NASA would not allow a foreigner to be a PI. Right. So James E. Milligan was the American who was named principal investigator of the Apollo telescope mount experiment, SO56. But Jim Underwood was really the brains behind it. And Jim had been doing X-ray optics, was vastly interested in X-ray astronomy. And he had actually had Perkin Elmer build a small three-inch diameter telescope mirror, a Walter One telescope mirror. And he had actually flown that on a sounding rocket. So I met with him and uh, discussed le learning the way in which these optics work. They work by a principle called uh, grazing incidents or glancing incidents. It's kind of analogous to if you go out to a pond and you pick up a nice flat rock and you throw it at a small angle at the surface of the pond, you can hit the pond and get it to skip. Well, right. that's the way these kind of glancing incidents x-ray mirrors work. You hit the mirror surface at a small angle of incidence and it reflects. You bounce it off a, an, an internal paraboloidal mirror, you reflect it to an internal hyperboloidal mirror, and bingo, it makes a focus. In x-rays, people had never before been able to focus x-rays. This was, this was astonishing. This was a completely new kind of technology that was opening up a new world of x-ray astronomy. I was sent back to NASA Marshall with a box containing this wonderful X-ray optic that Jim had previously flown on a sounding rocket, and I was bringing it back to do optical tests on this mirror. Anyhow, I wound up spending years uh, doing the development of the, uh, did the testing of the X-ray telescope optics for ATM experiment SO56. It was being put on Skylab, yes. and what was the hope, or what, what was the purpose? We knew very little about the solar corona. We very, knew very little about the high temperature atmosphere of the sun. A lot of work had been done on the photosphere and the corona with high altitude uh, coronagraphs, with chromospheric observations, with magnetospheric observations, and so forth. Uh, but very, very little was known about the high temperature plasma of the solar corona. Uh, the reason is, this emits x-rays, not visible light, and those x-rays are absorbed by the upper atmosphere, thank God, because if they were not, we would not be alive. So our atmosphere absorbs the x-rays and prevents us from re receiving this enormous burst of, of high-energy radiation. It's like uh, going and having an x-ray of your body. You know, when you go to the dentist, they cover you up to make sure you don't get too high a dosage. Right. Well, the sun is continually bathing the planet Earth in that kind of radiation. And in order to see it, you have to get above the atmosphere. So you can only do it with a rocket that carries you above the atmosphere, in which case you only get a few minutes of observation. Right. Or now putting it on an orbiting telescope, putting it aboard this new payload that was being developed that had a cluster of instruments to study the sun was going to open a completely new era of understanding about the nature and characteristics of the sun. Right. And there was another X-ray telescope on board Skylab called ATM Experiment SO54. And the principal investigator on that telescope originally 
was Ricardo Giacconi. Ricardo Giacconi won the Nobel Prize for discovering X-ray astronomy, or opening the field of X-ray astronomy. Uh, but we had a similar telescope, and it turns out that NASA headquarters decided that both of these telescopes would be flown. The Giacconi telescope, which was ultimately taken over by Al Krieger, and the ATM Experiment SO56 telescope, which was under the direction as, uh, as principal investigator of James E. Milligan. Now, what would have been the difference between, if they're so and similar? They were very similar. They were very similar. Uh, we had some differences. We had a different set of filters. We looked at slightly different spectral ranges. Uh, we had a, a, a proportional counter uh, called the X-ray event analyzer, so we could, could determine precisely how much flux the sun was producing. But the, t the experiments were similar. And, uh, and amazingly, NASA headquarters decided to fly both of them. And so now we've got two X-ray experiments on board. We've got uh, white light coronagraph. We've got uh, spectroheliographs. We've got all kinds of different kinds of experiments looking at the sun simultaneously. We had the responsibility that was delivered here uh, to Dr. Stuhlinger for the overall management uh, development of the Apollo telescope mount, which was the main experiment on board Skylab. This big, beautiful telescope mount to look at the sun and to give us our first full understanding of the nature of the sun from the photosphere all the way out to the corona. And so we had the responsibility of measuring the sun. Uh, there were uh, people doing magnetograms, observing the sun in, in magnetic fields, observing the sun in white light. There were a whole array of telescopes on Earth that were looking at the sun and providing information to the scientists at NASA Johnson Space Center. And we would work every morning in, the, uh, in our program planning room and determine just what we wanted the astronauts to do. And then, and that was done in coordination with the other experiments, and we established what was called a JOP, the Joint Observing Program, because other scientists might have wanted to look at different things. So you had to come to an agreement. Funny incident that happened. Uh, my first meeting personally with Dr. Von Braun, my boss, Jim Taylor, called me in one day and says, Richard, you're going to give a presentation to Dr. Von Braun this Friday. And I was kind of shocked. How, how long had you been there? Well, I was at that time at GS9. So this was been sometime in 1968, late 68, uh, I guess. I'd been NASA about two years. But I was a peon. I was GS9. Right. Everybody else was giving these presentations were division chiefs. I mean, these were GS-16s. So I had a, or my Gertz collimator and my little Walter mirrors, Walter Type 1 X-ray mirrors, and a traveling microscope so I could show Dr. Von Braun the resolution target. He could see how it was resolving uh, by just looking into the microscope. <laughs> While I was over by my telescope, my small t mirror, and he came over and stuck out his hand and says, Hello, I'm Werner Von Braun. Everybody on the planet Earth knows who you are. <laughs> so I put out my hand and says, hello, I'm Richard Hoover. And, and then I started showing him the 
way the telescope, the focus changed and so forth and, uh, and how sharp the focus was and uh, showing him how when you went off axis, you formed these things we called cardioids and lemosomes. And, and he's looking in and seeing all of these patterns appear and move as I moved the mirror. Well, he says, you know, I don't know enough about X-ray optics to ask intelligent questions. Uh, I just stood there and smiled. I decided, <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't say anything about that. <laughs> and anyhow, he finally got up to leave and shook my hand, and my boss gave me a thumbs up, so I thought, okay, I survived this well. <laughs> but the exciting thing about this is he left the door, went out, his whole entourage, Von Braun never traveled without an entourage, uh, Eberhard Reese and Ernst Stuhlinger and all the different lab directors, Horserman was there with him and so forth, and, and division chiefs, and we're all going down the hallway of B-Wing and Astrionic toward the corridor that links the front of the building to the back of the building, and a guy turns the corner and within feet almost ran into Werner von Braun and stopped immediately, shocked that he had almost had a collision with the center director. And von Braun stopped him and says, you there, what is your function in this laboratory? Well, Dr. von Braun, I'm I'm just a janitor here. (laughs) <laughs> and Von Braun looked up and down. Now, they knew he was coming. This place was beautiful. He said, this place is absolutely meticulous. You're to be congratulated for a job well done. And the guy just absolutely beamed, and the crowd sort of parted, and he walked through. Now, I never knew that guy's name. I don't know how long after that he lived, but I am sure he remembered that day and told that story to the day he died. And that told me one thing that I always remember about Werner von Braun. It did not matter who you were or what job you did. Every job was important. And the important thing was that you did it well and dutifully and correctly. If you did it properly, that was what he was interested in. If you made a mistake, you had a problem, he wanted you to tell him about it. If you told him about it, then you could work to solve the problem. He did not want anybody trying to hide anything from him. And it was because I think of that attitude that he got everyone to be willing to work 80 hours, 60 hour, 100 hour weeks right. in order to get the job done because failure was simply not an option. Well, we went, went on and we put the X-ray telescope, we got it completed, we got the mirrors fabricated. I did testing in visible light at NASA Marshall and then in x-rays out in Boulder and selected the best mirrors and we mounted them in the telescope structure. It then went to the thermal vacuum chamber in in Houston and it was in there being uh, exposed to artificial sunlight and measuring its properties and on one day repressurized it with Houston air. A cloud formed above the ATM flight article and it snowed Houston snow on the ATM flight article. This was a potential catastrophe. Jim Milligan requested permission to clean the mirrors. It was denied because it could cause a launch slip. Milligan wrote a letter to John Noggle and said, unless I have permission to clean the mirrors, I'm afraid the organics from the contamination 
may prevent me from getting good x-ray images of the sun. And if we're not allowed to clean the mirrors, I take no responsibility whatsoever for any images that we may or may not get. NASA headquarters decided we had to clean the mirrors. <laughs> Everybody else wanted to clean theirs too. <clears throat> so Milligan got it broken free. <clears throat> I, I wound up, I had developed the technique of cleaning these kind of x-ray optics. And we used a diaper cloth for one thing because it was pure cotton and we bought a bunch of uh, high quality diapers and cut them into little strips and then boiled them in, in water with several replacements to get rid of the sizing, dried them on a class 100 clean bench in a class 10,000 clean room. And then I went down there with a special kind of detergent that we had developed and with several gallons of pure ethyl alcohol and I would swipe across the mirror with the detergent on a piece of diaper cloth, throw it away, and then swipe with the pure ethyl alcohol while I'm, while I'm lying on a catwalk, looking up into the flight ATM about 30 feet above the bottom of the vacuum chamber, getting intoxicated by breathing the fumes of the pure ethyl alcohol. <laughs> so I would clean a while, and after about 45 minutes, I would start being woozy and realize I better stop and get out of there. So anyhow, we got the mirrors cleaned and they flew. And then we got wonderful data. And basically the science was, we discovered several things about the corona, the magnetohydrodynamics of, of the solar corona, papers published about the way in which the sun produces the energy for active regions, the way in which you, you had uh, these uh, uh, dark regions, uh, coronal holes, uh, and, and the nature of, of arcades and arches and the coronal loops. It's a lot of science, though. <laughs> we, we actually developed a new kind of, of telescope mirror that was flown uh, subsequently, in which we produced the first high-resolution pictures of the sun with multi-layer x-ray optics. Uh, I published that paper with our, our new co-investigator. Well, we've been on there for several several years with uh, uh, Arthur B.C. Walker of Stanford University. And uh, we published that paper and our x-ray image of the sun with the multi-layer telescope was published on the cover of Science and we had a feature research article in Science. So that work continued for literally all the way up until 2005 was the last paper I was involved in on x-ray optics. But by 1996, I had started working with, uh, with uh, Dr. David McKay and with Ken Nielsen and established the astrobiology group at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center because at that point in time, I had primarily migrated over to work on biomarkers in astromaterial and the search for microfossils in ancient uh, rocks, in ancient uh, terrestrial rocks, and in ancient carbonaceous meteorites, and it started working on extraterrestrial life, <laughs> what I've been doing for the last uh, quarter of a century now. Kind of brought you all the way back to the first item you got being a microscope. In 2017, for the first time, we discovered diatoms in the Orgase CI1 carbonaceous meteorite. And the presence of diatoms and cyanobacteria in these meteorites is absolute, conclusive, unambiguous proof of the existence of extraterrestrial life. The 
The Intuitive Planetarium is an immersive digital dome theater experience that offers educational astronomy shows, live entertainment, and exciting theater experiences. The only one of its kind in the Southeast, the Intuitive Planetarium at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center offers an 8K digital planetarium and digital dome experience. Additional time tickets are required for Intuitive Planetarium experiences. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. Now I think seeing that the Webb telescope is totally revolutionizing our understanding of the nature of the universe and showing images that are so spectacularly beautiful and so astonishing that that telescope is, is going down in history as being one of the greatest developments of, of NASA and one of the greatest developments of the space program itself. It has been an honor and a pleasure for me to be a docent at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center because every day I meet wonderful people who have a deep interest in rocketry and in science, and every day I get to talk to young people, and occasionally, just like the other day, there was a young girl. She must have been no more than in the fourth or fifth grade, and she wanted to become an astrophysicist. And she sat there while I talked to her about the Hoyle state and described to her the formation of carbon. And she was absolutely all ears. And as we finished and her mother started to take a photograph of us sitting together, she reached over and gave me a big hug. Oh. And, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's instants like that that say, oh, what a grand and glorious place the Space and Rocket Center is. And that is what inspires young people, and they are the future of mankind. It's overwhelming how much, how smart you are. (laughs) 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 But I really appreciate you spending the time with us uh, doing this on behalf of the the Rocket Center Foundation, and it's it's been an honor and a pleasure to to get to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let you 